can access there. Next week, Lord willing, we'll start 1 Thessalonians. Uh, So I'm going to go back over the same verses I covered last week, and in case you weren't here and you're saying, why doesn't he talk about this or that? Well, get last week's message. I probably covered it then, but I couldn't cover it all. So beginning with verse 7, Paul writes, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother, and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas's cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect, or the word means mature, complete, and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify of him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nympha and the church that's in her house. And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that's coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Stored in a safe place in the Library of Congress is a small blue box, and the label on it reads, Contents of the President's Pocket on the night of April 14th, 1865, which, if you know history at all, you know that was the horrible night in which Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. The box has five things in it. Number one is a handkerchief embroidered with a Lincoln. Second is a country boy's pen knife. The third thing is a a spectacles case, a glasses case with uh, repaired with string around it. Then there's a purse containing a $5 bill in Confederate money. (laughs) Strange. And then there are some old and worn newspaper clippings. The clippings mention the great deeds of Abraham Lincoln. One of them reports a speech by John Bright, who was a British statesman, saying that Abraham Lincoln is one of the greatest men of all time. Now, that, of course, is not news for us living over a century later, but in Lincoln's day, the jury was still out. There was fierce opposition to Lincoln from both sides as he sought to unify the nation 
as he emancipated the slaves, all of that. And uh, Lincoln hadn't read all the history books that we have read to say Lincoln was a great man. And so you can sort of picture a poignant scene, somewhat pathetic, as the president sitting in the lonely Oval Office reaches in his wallet and pulls out those clippings that are falling apart and reads again the words of one man who believed that Lincoln was a great man. And I think the point is that even a a great man like Lincoln needed encouragement, and we all do. And so did the Apostle Paul. And we need to keep in mind, Paul had not read future history that would be written back about him. He did not know, I don't think, that his letters to these churches would be in Scripture, in New Testament, that they would be spread in millions and millions of copies all over the globe for centuries to come, that he would affect the history of the world more than perhaps uh, almost any other man other than, of course, Jesus Christ himself. But from Paul's perspective, he was under house arrest in Rome. He had already spent two years under house arrest in Caesarea before he took that boat across the Mediterranean, suffered the shipwreck, finally arrived in Rome. His work consisted of a few small churches that he had planted around the Roman Empire, Uh, but those churches were not what we would call model churches that were doing great. In fact, they had a lot of problems. The Corinthian church was filled with strife and divisions and fighting and attacks against the Apostle Paul in his um, ministry. Uh, The church in Rome was preaching, or some of the leaders there were preaching against Paul out of envy and strife. We learn that in Philippians chapter 1. Paul's main critics, the Judaizers, he wrote the book of Galatians against them, but they dogged his steps everywhere he went, trying to get his Gentile converts to uh, follow the Jewish law in order to be saved. And rather than accumulating honors, as we may tend to do as we get older, if we are successful, uh, Paul had accumulated beatings and imprisonments and shipwreck and other serious hardships as he served the Lord. And now Epaphras had come to Rome from Colossae, and had told Paul about the false teachers that were infiltrating this young church that Epaphras had planted there. Paul had yet to visit it. And in his final greetings to that church, he mentions three men, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus Justice. And then he adds in verse 11, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, that is Jewish And they have proved to be an encouragement to me. So God used those three men to shine a light of encouragement into Paul's dark circumstances. Now in our last study, we saw that Christians are on a team devoted to serving the Lord Jesus Christ, that every Christian 
should be committed to serving Christ according to the gifts that he has given you. And I brought out six aspects of that team. The first, that the church is not a one-man show, but a team effort. And second, that the team consists of men and women from different racial and socioeconomic levels. Uh, In other words, it's a diverse team. Third, that the team is the family of God. We are brothers and sisters together because of the new birth. And that every team member, fourth, is a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. We saw in the fifth place that um, the team uh, is focused on prayer and the word and that the aim is to help every member uh, become mature in Christ And then the last point that I brought out last time was that uh, with a healthy dose of reality here, Paul shows that the team has some members who will often disappoint us. So we need to go into ministry understanding it isn't perfect. This isn't a Sunday school picnic. Uh, It's a real battle, and the enemy comes in and causes all of these difficulties among us. Now, there's one final principle, though, and it shows how the team operates. Namely, the team operates in this atmosphere of encouragement, encouraging each other, each member, to become all that God wants that member to be. So we have first the goal, and that is that every team member, every member of the body of Christ becomes all that God wants him or her to be. And then, secondly, we have the atmosphere in which that takes place, which should be an atmosphere of encouragement uh, in the body. So let's look first at the goal of the team, and that is for each member to become all that God wants uh, that member to be. We saw this back in Colossians 1.28 where Paul said this, We proclaim him, Christ, uh, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And just a few verses before that, he showed that God's aim in saving us, Colossians 1.22, he said, He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And so to be holy, to be blameless, to be beyond reproach is to be complete or mature in Christ. So it's the same aim. Um, Our church has written out a purpose statement. If you ever go on the church website, it's right there on the home page. And it reads as follows. At Flagstaff Christian Fellowship... We aim to build a community of joyful believers in Jesus Christ who love God and his word, love one another, and love those without Christ by bringing them the good news of uh, salvation. So our overall aim is to build a, a community of joyful believers in Jesus Christ And then that can be broken down into those three components of love for God, love for one another, love for the lost, both here and abroad, by bringing them the message of the gospel, the good news of salvation. And just as a quick overview to review the book of Colossians, 
uh, we see that Paul has brought out those three goals in this book. First of all, he's shown us that God wants us to be rightly related to him through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really the theme of Colossians 1.1, going all the way down through chapter 3 and verse 4. As we've seen, Colossians is a Christ-centered book because these false teachers were coming in and were promoting their rules and other things as the means of growth and holiness. And in effect, they were setting aside Jesus Christ as central. And so in the opening paragraph of the book, Paul mentions not only faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he mentions love for one another, and he mentions spreading the gospel to the lost. So you've got all three of those goals right here in Colossians 1, uh, 3 through 6. Notice as I read, We give thanks to, the, to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, Here it is, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, also it's constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it, and understood the grace of God in truth. So faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the beginning of a relationship with him. The Bible teaches that by birth and by behavior, all of us are alienated from God because of our sins. Romans 3.23 succinctly says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And furthermore, the Bible shows that there are no amount of good works that we can pile up to erase the debt of our sin. Uh, We are guilty before God, and we can't bridge that chasm by good works because we still have that record of our sin. And so how can we be reconciled to God, and how can we have our sins forgiven? Well, Paul continues in Romans 3, in verse 24, He says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now, to be justified is to be declared righteous by God. And Paul says it's a gift. It's not something we earn by our good behavior. It comes through God's grace, he says, which is his undeserved favor. And redemption means that um, God... Uh, sent Christ, who paid the, by his death on the cross, paid the penalty we deserve for our sin. And so God can be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Uh, Christ paid the debt. If we're in him, our debt is paid, and we go free. And the Bible shows that we receive this free gift of eternal life simply by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, back in Colossians chapter 1, Paul goes on and, and uh, mentions his prayer for them, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in all respects. 
And then there's that great passage at the end of chapter 1 in Colossians, verses 15 through 20, where he extols Jesus Christ as the creator, as the one who is above all, as the one in whom God is going to sum up all of history. And as we saw when we studied that, Paul is not there um, just presenting some exalted theology. Paul is worshiping Christ, and that's our goal. That's our main goal, that we all would become more, uh, more and more worshipers of Jesus Christ. And then throughout the first two chapters, as we've seen, Paul extols Christ again and again as he contrasts his ministry with the false teachers who were threatening the, the Colossian church. He said he wanted every person to come to know Christ because in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge uh, consist in Christ. He goes on and he says in chapter 2 that he wants each person uh, to continue walking in Christ Jesus the Lord, even as they had received him. And then he adds in verse 10 of chapter 2, because in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And he goes on to show that we've received everything we have from God, centers in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 3, the first four verses, he shows we're totally identified with Christ, and he sums it up with that great verse in Colossians 3, 4. He says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we also will be revealed with him in heaven. So all of that is a review just to say that being rightly related to God Through Jesus Christ is our number one goal. And Paul has set that forth with great power and clarity in Colossians. Um, Everything we do as a church should have that as our focus. Bringing people to know Christ, bringing people to grow in Christ. That's the center of what we're doing. Then the second goal is that God wants us to be rightly related to one another as we walk in love. And we saw that in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, down through chapter 4, verse 1, and it's also in our text that we're looking at this morning. But after extolling Christ, sometimes people think, well, theology is nice, but it's not practical. Paul shows the contrary. No, it's extremely practical. It affects our relationships. And so, Um, Beginning in chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul shows that because of who we are in Christ, we are to put to death uh, all the members of our body with regard to sexual immorality and greed. He goes on to say we should cast off all anger and abusive speech and lying. And then he shows that we should put on the new man, which is Christ and the church and its practices, which we could sum up as love. And then he applies that to the family. We saw that wives should be subject to their own husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. That husbands should uh, love their wives and not be embittered against them. That children should obey their parents. And that parents should not treat their children harshly to provoke them so that they would lose heart. He applies it to slaves and masters and shows that slaves should obey their masters and that masters should treat the slaves with fairness and justice. And so the point of that is, if we are Christ-centered in our 
hearts and our relationship with God, then it goes out horizontally into all our relationships with others. And then finally, the third goal that Colossians presents is that God wants us to be rightly related to those without Christ. And we do that through prayer and through wise witness, as we saw in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. We should love people without Christ by bringing them the good news of salvation. And prayer, as we saw, is the foundation for our witness. Before we talk to people about God, we should talk to God about people. And you should have a prayer list of people in your circle that you know that don't know Christ that you would be praying for, that God would open a door for the gospel to them. And then pray that we all could make the message clear when we get those opportunities to really say it as we should. And even Paul asked for prayer that he might make the message clear. Paul that wrote Romans and Galatians and all these great theological books says, would you pray for me that I could make the gospel clear when I get an open door? And so we should have the same prayer for ourselves. And then he says that we should walk with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunities as God opens them up, and that we should use winsome, gracious, uh, interesting, sensitive words to communicate the gospel. So just a, a quick review of the whole book shows what we're aiming at as a church is that each person would become all that God wants him or her to be, uh, that each person would be rightly related to God through faith in Christ, that each person would be growing in love for one another, that each of us would have a heart for the lost and recognize that without Christ uh, they have no hope, that our hearts would reach out to them with the only news that can bring light and salvation. Now, how do we do that? Well, to do that, we have to come to this seventh principle here, and that is there's an atmosphere that needs to permeate the local church. And that atmosphere is encouragement. Encouragement is the atmosphere where we help one another to become all that God wants us to be. And this passage, verses 7 through 18 of chapter 4, just oozes with encouragement. Uh, Paul, I think, was a master at giving genuine affirmation to people and especially to his fellow workers, so that they would be motivated to grow to their full potential in the Lord. And there are nine factors here I just can touch on briefly um, involved in creating that atmosphere of encouragement in the local church. First of all, encouragement thrives with open communication. Paul says here that he's sending Tychicus and Onesimus to inform the church of his situation so that they would be encouraged. In verses 7 through 9, he mentions that. In other words, he wants them to know the facts. He had nothing to hide from them. Now remember, Paul is in prison, and uh, he's got other Christian workers in Rome criticizing him. And Paul could have gone two directions with that. He could have made it sound so bleak that he's trying to elicit sympathy so that everyone, oh, poor Paul, my goodness, what a horrible situation. He could have gone that way, or he could have just uh, put on a good spin to everything in a way 
that would have hidden any problems at all and made it sound like he was more successful than he really was. But Paul didn't do that. He told the truth, but he told the truth in a way that brought encouragement. Now, here's how that works, I think, on the personal level. Say you're struggling with some problem. Maybe you're defeated in some aspect of your Christian life. Maybe you're discouraged. And you come to church, and you put on your happy Christian face, and a brother in Christ says to you, how you doing? And you go, hey, I'm doing great, thanks. Boy, the Lord's good. And you just kind of shined it on. You didn't tell him how you're really doing. And you know what? You just missed an opportunity for your brother to encourage you. Because he doesn't know the truth. He doesn't know the truth. He thinks, oh, okay, he's doing fine. I'm sure not, but he is. Okay. And he moves on, and there was a missed opportunity there. Now, I'm not saying you've got to bury your whole soul to every single person, but if it's somebody you know and trust, and he says, how are you doing? We, we need to be honest. You know, we just need to say, well, frankly, I could use your prayers. I'm struggling right now with some stuff. And that honest communication fosters encouragement. Secondly, encouragement is fostered when we interpret our trials by faith. Paul says in verse 8 that Tychicus will tell you Colossians about my circumstances, and he adds, so that he may encourage your hearts. Now, how, how would learning about Paul being in prison um, encourage the Colossians? Well, Tychicus could have gone back and said, oh, it's just awful. I mean, Paul is chained to a guard 24 hours a day. Paul can't go anywhere. Paul can't do anything. Other Christians in Rome are, are preaching against him out of envy. It's really grim. But that wasn't how Paul interpreted his circumstances. Um, he saw his imprisonment as a terrific opportunity. I get a different guard every few hours, and they're captive. They can't go anywhere. They're chained to me. So guess what? I got a, an opportunity to share the gospel with different guards. And in Philippians, he says, uh, many throughout the whole Praetorian Guard have now come to faith. So rather than being de- defeated by his circumstances, Paul was turning it into an opportunity. And then there are those guys in Rome who are preaching out of envy and strife. And Paul says, well, at least they're preaching the gospel. <laughs> you know, the gospel's going out. And so he interprets that by faith. And so he could send Tychicus with a word of encouragement because Paul interpreted his trials through the lens of Romans 8.28, that God uh, works all these things together for good to his saints, to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so if we will do that, if we will interpret our trials that way, it will bring encouragement to our brothers and sisters who are, you can count on it, every person here has trials. And if we look at our trials through the lens of faith, then that spreads encouragement to our other brothers and sisters to see their trials in the same way. A third factor here is that encouragement involves standing with a brother or sister who is being unjustly attacked. Um, In verse 11, Paul says of these three Jewish brothers, Aristarchus, Mark, and this man, Jesus, Justice, they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Now, 
In the Greek text, that word encouragement is not the same word that he uses up in verse 8. In fact, this word only occurs once in the entire Greek New Testament. But in secular Greek, it's used as a medical term that refers to alleviating pain. And so Paul is saying, these brothers, Mark and Aristarchus, Mark and Jesus Justice, have alleviated my pain. Well, how did they do that? Well, Mark had caused Paul some pain when he left and deserted them on the first missionary journey. But now he's recovered, and he's there, and he's an encouragement. Uh, It's interesting how he recovered. A man named Barnabas, whose name literally means son of encouragement. Barnabas laid hold of Mark and thought he deserves another chance. And he kind of recycled Mark back into ministry. So now Paul is reaping the benefits of the son of encouragement, encouraging Mark, and Mark is encouraging Paul. And it all kind of comes around. Um, And then together, these three men, he says, are from the circumcision. And uh, they gave encouragement because they didn't join with the Judaizers. The Judaizers were going around attacking Paul's motives, attacking Paul's ministry. Um, And uh, there were critics in Rome, I think, who were attacking Paul and saying, if the man was a true apostle, do you think he'd be in prison? Come on, God would get him out. And they're attacking Paul. But these three guys, they said, no, we believe, Paul, in your character You're a man of integrity. We believe in your ministry, in your message, and they stood with Paul. And that encourages us. And the point is this. If you get involved in ministry, you will be criticized. You will. It will happen. And it is a great encouragement when a fellow member of the body comes up, puts their arm around you, and just says, Hey, Paul, we're with you. We stand with you. The third thing to note is that encouragement is a mutual need. In other words, here you have the Apostle Paul. He's one of the most gifted men in the history of Christianity. And he says, these three men have been an encouragement to me. They have encouraged me. Uh, He didn't see himself up on a pedestal where ministry was a one-way street. Uh, He needed ministry. It's interesting when he wrote to the Roman church, he said, I really long to be with you so that I can impart some spiritual gift to you to help establish you. And then, as if catching himself, he very quickly adds this in Romans 1.12, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And so Paul not only wanted to give encouragement, Paul knew he needed encouragement And we all need that. Uh, Fifth thing to note is that encouragement is given through verbal affirmation. Paul verbally told these people that he appreciated them and the encouragement that they had been to him. It's interesting, as I pointed out last week, he affirms every one of the workers here except Demas. And we know that Demas shortly thereafter defected and uh, deserted Paul. But Paul wasn't afraid to promote others' ministries, and neither should we be. We're all on the same team, and that includes other churches that preach the gospel. 
And if they're doing well, we should rejoice because the gospel is going out. And so we need that mindset of verbally letting others in the body know, I appreciate what you're doing. You know, thanks for your ministry. A sixth principle here is that encouragement flows through prayer. And Paul encourages the Colossians by telling them how Epaphras is laboring for them in his prayers. And you know, it's always encouraging when you hear that people are praying for you, isn't it? You know, people just come up and say, hey, I was praying for you this week. Um, I encourage you to do this. Get a copy of the church directory, if you're a regular here, and begin to pray through it. And maybe you say, well, I don't know all those people. That doesn't matter. If you pray for them, and most of them have pictures in the directory, and then you see them at church, you can go, hey, I prayed for you this week. And that's instantly encouraging to them to say, really? I don't even know you. You prayed for me? Yeah, yeah, I prayed for you this week. I was praying through the directory, and maybe they'll be encouraged to pray through the directory. Uh, But it just says to them, you know, I'm with you. I'm with you in the battle, bro. How's it going? Uh, I think Paul's final request in verse 18, too, when he says, remember my imprisonment, I think that's a prayer request. Remember my imprisonment. Well, they knew Paul was there, but he's showing them by that request, you could be imprisoned too. There's a cost to discipleship. But pray, pray for me and my trials. So we need to uphold one another in prayer. And then a seventh principle here is that encouragement is extended when we grant forgiveness to those who have wronged us. Paul sent the letter of Philemon along with the letter of Colossians back to this city. And he asked Philemon to forgive his runaway slave Onesimus. And Paul practiced what he preached because here it's clear he's forgiven Mark who had deserted him. And uh, Paul commends him to the church and says, when he comes to you, welcome Mark. Later, he'll say to Timothy, bring Mark with you because uh, he's useful to me in ministry. And so there was forgiveness. But, you know, when you wrong someone and you ask their forgiveness and they say, hey, I forgive you, that's encouraging because it shows all of us, yeah, we all blow it, but there's hope. Uh, We can forgive, whether it's in our marriages, in the church. Forgiveness is needed because we all do step on one another's toes in various ways at times. And so we need to extend encouragement by forgiveness. And then, eighthly, encouragement sometimes requires gentle correction and challenge in a context of affirmation. It's kind of interesting how Paul exhorts Archippus down in verse 17. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you've received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Now, why didn't Paul just directly say to Archippus, hey, Archippus, get with it? You know, why does he go obliquely around through the church? Well, I think by addressing the church, he's gently challenging Archippus But he's also saying to the church, that man has been called of God, and you guys need to stand with him. You know, he has a ministry God has given him to do. We don't know why he says this. 
It, it could be that Archippus, like Timothy, tended to be a little bit timid, and he needed encouragement to speak out the truth of the Lord. We don't know what it was, but in one brief sentence, Paul both challenges Archippus, and at the same time, he says to the church, you guys get behind him. You know, he has a ministry in the Lord. And sometimes encouragement requires kind of putting your arm around a brother and saying, you know, you're doing well, but you can do better. You, you can do better and encouraging them to grow. And then a final thing. Encouragement is bathed in grace. And the last sentence of Colossians is literally, the grace be with you. All you Star Wars fans, it sounds like the force be with you. But uh, the grace is far better than the force, let me assure you. The grace be with you. Now that's a common way to close a letter, but it's more than just a perfunctory close to a letter, because grace is at the heart of the gospel that Paul preached, that God grants eternal life apart from human merit. You can't earn it, you can't deserve it, you can't merit it in any way, all you can do is receive it. That's grace. And grace is at the heart of how we grow as Christians. We walk in Christ as we received him, by grace through faith. And so we need grace daily to cover all of our shortcomings and sins. And by grace, we strive to be more holy so God can use us. But beneath everything in the Christian life is grace. And so we encourage one another by extending grace to one another. Grace. Yeah, but they don't deserve it. That's precisely what grace is. It's undeserved. Extend grace to one another. Many, many years ago in California, I uh, came under the most intense criticism I'd ever received in ministry because after a long battle, I decided I could not endorse certain so-called Christian psychology programs that um, some people in the church wanted to bring into the church. And I thought I stated my case graciously and just said, here's where I'm at in my conscience before God. I can't, can't do this, but wow, uh, it was intense. I still have a file folder of letters calling for my resignation, you know, written to the elder board. And... Uh, and I got a lot of encouraging letters at the same time. But one night I was kind of feeling down by it all. And I went in the bathroom to get ready for bed. And there was one of those yellow sticky notes on the bathroom mirror that our 14-year-old daughter at the time, Krista, had written in her own hand, Jeremiah 29:11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, and not for calamity, to give you future and a hope. And I was encouraged <laughs> to have my 14-year-old put that on the mirror for me. And then, a short time later, I had moved over here and began as pastor, and some of you were here then and know that there were four elders who were trying to get me fired shortly after I began because I had to firmly oppose one of them who was running for public office, and it came out that he was pro-choice on abortion. And I just said, well, I'm sorry, you can't be an elder here and be pro-choice on abortion. And uh, many of you wrote encouraging notes to me at the time, which I deeply appreciate. 
But I have one note that meant more to me than anything else. Came from then my 13-year-old daughter, Joy, and she wrote this. Mom and Dad, I just want you to know that I really appreciate you, even though some other people don't. Don't listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) Dad, I'm really glad that you only preach the truth and don't compromise what the Bible says. Your sermons have helped me lots. A lot of other people have said the same. Just hang in there, and both of you keep up the good work. Look up these verses. They've been an encouragement to me, Jeremiah 29.11 and Romans 8.28. I love you lots. Love always joy. And that's encouragement. That's how we encourage one another through the word. And that's how God's team should operate. We should have this atmosphere of encouragement in our church. As we are in the battle against the enemy, sometimes we do dumb things, we do wrong things, but we encourage one another in the Lord, uh, that we encourage each other to become all that God wants each person to be. Let's bow in prayer. If you're here this morning and you've never received the gift of eternal life, that is the most important thing you could ever, ever do. It determines your eternal destiny. If you have not done that, you are under God's wrath, according to Scripture. And God will judge you if you die in that condition. But you don't have to. God offers mercy and grace and forgiveness of all your sins. And eternal life is a free gift if you'll come to him in simple faith and say, Lord, I call out to you, would you save me? Dear Father, I pray you would work in the hearts of any who are outside of the encouragement that we have in Christ to draw them into that circle. I pray for any of my brothers and sisters who may be discouraged through problems in their lives, through criticism, through failure, that, Lord, we'd all be encouraged to go on to become all that you want us to be. Thank you for Christ and his great example of going to the cross for our sins. Thank you for Paul and all that he endured for the sake of the gospel. And I pray that those examples would encourage us as we fight the good fight of faith in Jesus' name. Amen.